This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations and your host here on Ringler Radio. And today we're coming to you from the 2009 AAJ Annual Convention in sunny San Francisco. I can't wait to go over to the Exhibition Hall. Uh, If some of you are around here, you can make it over there. It's terrific. There are so many unique and interesting services on display for today's lawyers, including a very special booth sponsored by Ringler Associates, which I think is pretty cool. In fact, I'm supposed to be there tomorrow, Brian, to to man it, but I don't know if I'm going to be there. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Rachel Grant. Rachel is a settlement annuity specialist in the Detroit office. She's got extensive knowledge in cases involving physical injuries, non-physical injuries, including product liability, medical malpractice, general liability, workers' comp, and uh, more than that, she's uh, one of my favorites in the company. Welcome, Rachel. Well, thank you so much, Larry, and nice to be here. Great. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to talk about emergency room errors, traumatic birth injuries, and neurological injuries, and to help us get through all that is our special guest, Attorney Brian McKean from McKean and Associates in Detroit, Michigan. Brian began practicing in 1982, and during his career, he's become a powerful advocate for his clients and one of the foremost medical malpractice attorneys in the state of Michigan. He currently sits on the executive boards of the Michigan Association of Justice and the American Association for Justice, the AAJ. Hence, that's why he's out here today. And Brian... You also serve as the chair of the professional negligence section and co-chair of birth trauma litigation group. You got a lot of uh, a lot of things on your plate there, Brian. Welcome to Ring Radio. Well, thank you, Larry. Rachel, good to be with you. Great. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the AAJ. Now, you serve as the chair of professional negligence section and the co-chair of the birth trauma litigation group. Tell us a little about your role there uh, and what that's all about. I actually just completed my tenure last year as a co-chair of professional negligence and of a birth trauma litigation group. But professional negligence sponsors continuing legal education programs during the AAJ convention. Mm-hmm. We publish a newsletter and, in addition, uh, roundtable discussion groups. The birth trauma litigation group is a private litigation group that's uh, open only to members who specifically join, whereas the professional negligence section is open to everyone who attends the convention. Litigation groups are can only be attended by members of the group who are actually plaintiff's attorneys. I see. And they're wonderful opportunities for exchange of information. We put on formal education programs. We have a functioning listserv, and it's a wonderful opportunity for people to network with their colleagues, learn more about case-specific topics, about defense experts and that kind of thing. You share discovery over, you know, between cases. Absolutely, because there's so many common issues that run between these cases. Good. And Brian, how long have you been involved in those two um, parts of AAJ? I probably got involved in birth trauma litigation group shortly after it uh, began, which I'm thinking is probably 15 years ago. And it's been uh, a wonderful part of AAJ membership. Great number of uh, outstanding attorneys that participate in that. And we've been... Um, 
a really effective networking organization for our members as issues came along involving uterine rupture, uh, things of that nature. There was a big controversy a number of years ago when the American College of OB-GYN published a technical bulletin 163 that professed to articulate the prerequisites that one would need to see before they could relate interpartum events to cerebral palsy. Mm. And our, our group was very effective in educating our members and the courts around this country about why that's junk science and why those concepts really don't apply. Well, I guess we'll start off. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about emergency room errors, Brian. Um, what's the most common emergency room error that you're seeing these days? Well, the most common error generically is emergency departments sending patients home with potentially life-threatening conditions. And that could be a variety of things, uh, ischemic heart disease, an impending heart attack, uh, impending stroke, children with uh, serious infections, meningitis, that kind of thing. But the common thread that runs between these cases is that someone comes to the emergency department and people obviously go there because they want to rule out a life-threatening condition. And all too often we see a situation where a patient who does have a life-threatening condition is sent home before a complete workup's been initiated and a life-threatening condition's been ruled out. Well, you know, let's talk about that because there's a lot of controversy these days about who uses the emergency rooms. Now, I would assume that some of the people you're talking about that have these life-threatening issues sometimes come and, and there's delay uh, because some other folks are there just trying to cure their common cold. I mean, there there aren't emergency rooms being used more and more as almost a doctor's office today by some uh, by some folks? Well, that's true. In some segments of our society, uh, emergency rooms are used more often than they should be by patients who don't really have a relationship with a primary care physician. Mm-hmm. But that's what triage is for. And they've got trained personnel who need to make a distinction between those people who have routine common complaints and those patients who need to be seen immediately. In any event, these patients are all eventually seen. And the important thing is that you rule out a life-threatening condition before you let that patient go home. Interesting. So what about those patients that are turned away, Brian? Um, Do you see a lot of uh, patients that are turned away that end up suffering later on? Are they coming back? What are you seeing with that? Oh, we see all kinds of examples of that, Rachel. In fact, I'm getting ready to try a case now where a young lady had a syncopal episode. She passed out at home. She was found unconscious on the floor by her daughter. They summoned EMS. EMS determined that she had a low pulse ox and brought her to the emergency department. And the emergency department, her pulse ox improved. Uh, a couple of tests were done, a CT scan of the head, but there were no tests done to rule out pulmonary embolism. And if you look at any emergency medicine textbook, the differential diagnosis for a syncopal event or someone passing out includes pulmonary embolism. And that's particularly true in someone who's had a low pulse ox. And yet no tests were done to rule out pulmonary embolism. Next day, the patient returns to the emergency department, uh, code shortly after she arrives and dies. This is a preventable death. And we see cases all the time of patients, middle-aged males and, and females too, because there's an increasing incidence of heart disease among females. But they come to the emergency department with a presentation that might suggest the possibility of indigestion or epigastric distress, but yet it might also be ischemic heart disease. And we see all too often patients sent home who should be admitted to a coronary care unit before they've had a thorough workup to rule out heart disease. Interesting. So what advice would you give to patients who are turned away but think that it's something more serious? What, what, are, the, what are his or her options? Well, his or her options, first of all, are to ask a lot of questions in the emergency department. And ask Mm -hmm. the physician, what's the most serious thing that it could be? And what are the tests that we can do to rule those possibilities out? If those questions aren't answered to their satisfaction, they should go to another emergency department. Ask questions, demand attention, and demand that the the, the disease be 
uh, evaluated for what it might be. You know, my wife always has told me, and she's in the medical field, she says, you always need an ombudsman when you're in that hospital. Someone speaking up on your behalf, because sometimes people are a little reticent, you know, because they got doctors and nurses telling them things, and you have to have somebody asking the more, the, you know, the more probing question. Well, most of us are brought up to, to trust people in positions of authority. We're very deferential to physicians. We're very loath to question their instructions or their opinions, but the, the reality is you need to ask a lot of hard questions. And you need to be well-informed about the potential disease processes that your symptoms suggest might exist. Yeah, you know, I hate it when my wife is right like that. She always <laughs> seems to be right. Let's talk about uh, a very important case in Michigan. Well, I guess it's Michigan's largest medical malpractice verdict. Tell us a little bit about that case. And, uh, well, and that was a very result. tragic case involving a six-month-old infant whose mother had brought her to the emergency department three times in the four days preceding the uh, admission in question. And the child had had uh, cold type of symptoms. The child was given um, nebulizer, inhalers, antibiotics for an ear infection, but kept coming back to the emergency department. And ironically, the night before this child arrested, her mother brought her to the emergency department and complained that the child was gasping for air. Mm. And the mother said she didn't want it to get any worse. In the emergency department, she was evaluated by a foreign trained physician who had failed his board exams all six times he had taken him, who had been dismissed from the United States Air Force for eight separate acts of incompetence against pediatric patients. And all this information, by the way, Larry, the jury wasn't allowed to find out about. Wow. But in a rather short order, uh, this physician determined that the child uh, simply had uh, bronchiolitis, uh, upper respiratory infection, and discharged her home. These disease processes, serious RSV infections, respiratory syncytial virus, and it turns out this child also had nutritional rickets, vitamin mm. D deficiency, which surprisingly to a lot of people is a disease that's on the rise in the African-American community, particularly in northern climates like Detroit. Uh, African-American babies in the wintertime don't get exposed to enough sunlight to uh, absorb enough sunlight to, to produce vitamin D and uh, develop nutritional rickets. In any event... The child was in a quiescent phase of her illness at the particular time she's in the emergency department. And what we told the jury was it's not just a question of what the child looks like at that moment. It, the question is, what's the child look like during one of these periods of gasping? Mm -hmm. So the physician sent the patient home. The next morning, the child had additional respiratory problems. The mother sought out to head for the emergency department. And unfortunately, the child arrested on route. And by the time the child was brought to the emergency department. She'd been down for 15 minutes and suffered severe anoxic brain damage. Mm. The treating physician determined that the child had developed uh, something called laryngospasm, or spasm of the vocal cords, due to low calcium levels. And that was a, an issue that was disputed by a radiologist who had failed to diagnose rickets on a chest x-ray. Yeah. And ultimately, we told the jury it's academic to us whether this arrest was due to hypocalcemia causing laryngospasm, or was, whether it's due to a more common cause of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, the case was about a child with respiratory problems who needed to be in the hospital, and respiratory arrest is a preventable complication of either RSV or hypocalcemia, and this is a child who just never should have been sent home, right. and because she was, suffered an anoxic insult, and unfortunately has cerebral palsy, and is going to live the rest of her life in a wheelchair with severe mental retardation. What was the uh, final result? Uh, $55 million. The defendant appealed. It was uh, affirmed by a three-Republican panel of the Michigan Court of Appeals, and eventually the case settled while appeal was pending before the Michigan Supreme Court. 
Wow. Well, you know, we've we've had a lot of opportunities on Ringo Radio to talk about uh, traumatic birth injuries as well as uh, the kinds of injuries you just mentioned. Uh, share with us, do you have any cases where you have a client that was affected by a traumatic birth injury? That seems to be uh, one of the areas that really uh, makes people squirm. We have lots of those cases. I mean, that's our subspecialty. That's what we spend the, the bulk of our time doing, our birth injury cases. And we see cases over and over again every week, children... Uh, who have cerebral palsy, who have hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, uh, whose mothers had difficulties in labor. Um, perhaps the cesarean section should have been done and wasn't. Perhaps a dangerous non-indicated uh, forceps or vacuum operation was performed that resulted in brain damage. And we've seen cases, unfortunately, of mothers experiencing brain damage as well. Mm-hmm. I had a case a couple of years ago where a mother came in the emergency department. She's a 21-year-old college student. Uh, working as an aerobics instructor, putting herself through school. And she came in the emergency department late in her pregnancy, complaining of decreased fetal movement, abdominal pain, and uh, she had hypertension. Now, this would have suggested to most people that there was a placental abruption. But the uh, attending physician didn't put two and two together, didn't realize that she had abrupted. And a laboratory panel was returned that showed she had a condition called DIC, or disseminated intervascular coagulopathy. And unfortunately, that disease wasn't recognized. She wasn't treated for DIC. After she developed a stillborn baby, she had severe postpartum hemorrhage. And because she wasn't treated properly for that, suffered an arrest, anoxic brain damage. Mm. She's in a wheelchair and is cortically blind. Wow. So we see injuries to mothers. We see injuries to babies. And we see too many of both. So when we're talking about birth trauma injuries, Brian, um, and like the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and things like that. What are the long-term, the long-term results for the kids? We know cerebral palsy, but you know, on a day-to-day basis, what kind of lives do these kids live? Well, that, that, you know, injury occurs across a spectrum. We see some children with, you know, mild learning, cognitive impairments. We see other children who have severe cerebral palsy with spasticity or confined to a wheelchair. Some children, unfortunately, can't even sit up or hold their head or or take food, have to be fed Mm -hmm. uh, via tube. So we see injury all across the spectrum from mild to severe. Well, you know, let me, let me just turn a little bit from uh, this talk about the, the medicine to, to how you, ha- you, know, you help these people as they get these verdicts and these settlements. Uh, how often do you find structured settlements as a, as a helpful tool in helping these people live their lives? In virtually every birth injury case that we handle and in virtually every case where there's catastrophic long-term care needs, we utilize a combination of cash and an annuity in the form of a structured settlement mm-hmm. to uh, fund the settlement. Yeah, and it's an important, uh, I know it's an important aspect of these people's lives. I mean, th- there's oftentimes care required for these individuals that is uh, it's just mind-boggling in terms of the cost and, and the longevity of it all. And we have seen so often that, unfortunately, people who get cash in these cases sometimes dissipate it a lot more quickly, uh, and these children are suffering for that. That is very true. And there have been very few circumstances in which that's happened in my practice, but I have seen it happen. And it's not a pretty thing when it does happen. It's very unfortunate because these people do need the money. They need it long term. And people who aren't used to having a lot of cash find you know various ways in which to go through the cash. And it's just it's an understandable phenomenon. It occurs all too often. And that's why with large amounts of money, with long-term care needs, it's almost universally wise to do some type of structured settlement. Well, Rachel, I know you help Brian oftentimes in these structured settlement uh, situations. Yeah. T- tell, tell us a little bit about how you uh, work with Brian on these cases. 
Well, I mean, you know, oftentimes we come in from the defense side of the case um, mm-hmm. and we, uh, you know, find out that Brian and his office, his the other attorneys in his office are, are involved in the case and, um, you know, start dialogue pretty early to try to determine what his client's needs are and, and what and how we can best develop a plan that will that will fit the long-term care needs, given the fact that there's so many, the injuries are so varied and that, and that the needs over the long term are going to be very different for each client. Um, so, yeah. you know, we get, get involved and then we're able to, oftentimes I'm, I get to meet with Brian's clients um, in his conference room with him and, and other attorneys from his office present where we actually sit down and kind of go through, have, an, have a face-to-face conversation with the parents or the injured parties themselves or the caregivers to, to try to determine what the needs of the, of the person and the family um, is long term and and de- develop a structured settlement plan that meets those individual needs. And because and because of those injuries sustained by these uh, and and debilitating injuries sustained by these uh, children, you're able to get age ratings on these cases that really enhance the uh, the long the long term value of these cases. Absolutely, I mean we're off almost every time, especially in the birth injury cases, we're able to get substandard age ratings from the life insurance companies that allow us to provide a much greater benefit to Brian's clients and other clients in the Michigan and Ohio area um, that than, than we would otherwise be able to without uh, submission of medical records and things like that. Terrific. Well, I, it's good to have a good relationship with someone like that, uh, Brian, and uh, I know you and Rachel work on these cases quite a bit. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and we'll be back in a minute with more with Brian McKean. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and again, glad you joined us. We're here at the AAJ National Convention, uh, San Francisco, California. I'm loving it out here. The weather's great. And with me is Rachel Grant, our settlement annuity specialist in the Detroit office, and attorney Brian McKean from McKean & Associates in Detroit. Brian, do you have any real-life stories in which uh, one of your clients uh, used a structured settlement to really help their life moving forward? And, uh, you know, a lot of times we hear about those, those individuals who should have taken a structure and didn't, and we hear about those who did take a structure and have really... Uh, you know, taking advantage, taking advantage of that. Tell us about one of your clients. Well, we see all kinds of examples. I mean, I've had the pleasure of visiting several clients in their new homes, 
after we, we've negotiated a settlement for them and they've got barrier free homes. Mm. Uh, they've got wonderful living environments. Uh, but one particular young man, I would say Jesse was maybe eight or 10 years old when he resolved this case, which was about eight or 10 years ago. He's a young man now, 18, 19 years old, uh, severe cerebral palsy, um, mostly confined to a wheelchair, has very little ambulation. But with the proceeds of, of the litigation, he and his mother were able to purchase a large farm home on a big piece of property. Jesse loves horses. He's got a barn. He's got his horses and a barrier-free environment and really a nice place to live. And his mother and he both expressed their gratitude uh, that we were able to afford them with a lifestyle that enjoys uh, that allows Jesse to get on with the remaining abilities he has and minimize the extent of his disabilities. Terrific. Terrific. Well, I have to say that, you know, hearing that, Brian, it's very, it's actually very gratifying to know that long term, you know, we never really hear about, about the about the kids later. And so it's nice to hear that, you know, the, all those positive stories. Yeah, and Jesse sent me a plaque a couple of years ago, which hangs in the wall in my office. And I can't quote it verbatim, but it has words to the effect of, you know, in 50 years from now, no one will ever remember, you know, what kind of car I drove or how much money I had in the bank, but that I made a difference in the life of a child. And that kind of thing really makes it worthwhile for me. I look at that plaque all the time and and uh, really feel proud about what we did to help that young man and his mother. That's wonderful. I I have the same plaque in my office, too. Can you send <laughs> me one? I will. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it. Great. Okay, I'm going to change, change gears here a little bit, Brian. Um, you know, we all know that medicine is not a perfect science and that diagnoses are not always perfect, often not perfect. Um, how do you determine... Um, when a, when a client comes, when a potential client comes to see you, how do you determine if there's actually been medical negligence? Well, first of all, we, with our investigative team, uh, do a new client interview, take a detailed history about what happened, and we make a determination what records need to be ordered. We uh, obtain the records, we review them in-house with our full-time uh, nurse paralegal, and then make an in-house determination about who needs to review the case. We send the cases out to physicians in the appropriate area specialty to make a threshold determination as to whether there was, in fact, a deviation from an acceptable standard of medical care. And if so, then we need to make a determination as to whether more appropriate uh, medical intervention would have made a difference in the outcome. So that often involves review by several different specialists. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting that the process that you use, uh, I would assume, ends up oftentimes with you saying you're not going to take the case. I mean, you don't, you don't sense that there's a, a, a medical negligence issue. So what percentage of those types of cases that come to your door do you actually pursue? You know, I can't quote you statistics mm-hmm. off the top of my head, but well over 90% of the cases that are referred to us, many of which are pre-screened by referring attorneys, I see. Uh, are turned away because we don't feel we have an adequate foundation to establish either a breach of the standard of care or a reasonable likelihood of a better outcome. I know these cases are very costly to pursue in the courthouse with, with, with experts and everything else, and uh, it's never easy. So I would assume that uh, you know that that careful consideration is important to you because obviously, if the case is lost, uh, the client doesn't pay those costs. You have to pay those. That's costs. That's right. And the biggest fallacy in this whole area of medical malpractice is the idea of frivolous lawsuits. I can guarantee you that neither myself or any of my colleagues, any AJ member I've ever met is the least bit interested in pursuing a frivolous lawsuit. These cases are very time-intensive. They're very high-risk. They require uh, investment of tremendous amounts of money. And you cannot take a case unless you are very certain that you've got 
a, a breach of a standard of care in a relationship to a bad outcome. Well, let, let me follow up on that for a second because we're hearing we're right now in the period of uh, healthcare reform. You know, that's being bandied about in Congress right now. Big hot button issue. And oftentimes you'll hear that one of the reasons for these uh, diagnostic tests and, and, and the plethora of those tests, and perhaps even they call them unnecessary tests, is because of medical malpractice lawsuits, uh, which they're about drive up the cost of health care. How do you answer all those arguments that come your way? Uh, stitch in time saves nine. I don't see examples <laughs> in my day-to-day practice of a lot of unnecessary tests being done. I see examples of a lot of patients going home from emergency departments without tests being done. For example, in the context of a uh, uh, ischemic heart disease, an impending heart attack, there's a well-defined uh, protocol for workup of those patients, and it entails serial EKGs, serial cardiac enzymes. You can't rule out an impending heart attack with one EKG or one set of enzymes. You need to get a set of three, and that's not done all too often. I don't see examples of, of cases where um, too many diagnostic tests are being done. I really don't. I've got a case right now of a young uh, woman who I said uh, died uh, because someone didn't get a CT scan of the chest. They sent her down to CT to get a CT of the head with very little reason to suspect she might have any type of intracranial pathology. She didn't have any complaints of headache, but she'd passed out. And uh, a primary cause of, of uh, syncope like that is, is pulmonary embolism. We see all too often patients who go home from the emergency department either without a head CT or if they've had a, a negative head, t, uh, head CT, they don't get a follow-up lumbar puncture, who mm-hmm. go on to have uh, a recurrent cerebral aneurysm that causes catastrophic damage. So you're not seeing uh, a great amount of defensive medicine being practiced out there by uh, doctors who would normally uh, not, be, not be testing for these certain issues? Uh, on the contrary. I think that's a fallacy that I really see no evidence of in my day-to-day practice. Well, that's interesting. And I'm sure it's going to be discussed more and more as we go through this uh, health care issue. I'm certain of that. Um, Brian, I mean, I, I'm hearing from the defense side, I'm hearing about a lot of, um, you know, task force that are that are being set up in hospitals among the staff. I mean, do you see that, that we've made any progress to prevent ER errors or injuries, neurological injuries or birth or otherwise? Not as much as I'd like to see. I know there's some places like the University of Michigan who I think have been very um, progressive in their thinking. And when they make a mistake, they own up to it. They want to uh, apologize to the family. They want to try and make it right with the family. But all too often, uh, I think that risk management staffs are more interested in trying to control uh, their their outlay of cash for settlements rather than go back and, and do some serious introspection and see what went wrong. I see cases all the time of, of uh, doctors who are repeat offenders who are still on staff. The case I mentioned of the young lady um, in, in Flint, Michigan, who... Um, had DIC and had a severe postpartum bleed. Her doctor had been sued 16 times. He had presided at the delivery of another woman who, in an eerily similar case, also suffered an arrest and died, and who had DIC. And this doctor is a bad doctor who never passes boards, was never weeded out of the system. Whose fault is that? When, when someone has that many uh, problems in their record? It's the fault of the hospital for not taking on the doctor and saying, look at you just don't belong on staff here. We can't let you continue, at least not without some mentoring, re-education program. I think it's the responsibility of the hospital. But the courts are very reluctant. In our particular case, the judge was very reluctant and wouldn't let us pursue a staff privileges claim. 
found mm-hmm. a pretext to dismiss the staff privileges claim. And we did pursue the case against the hospital on the basis that the nurses should have realized that the doctor was making a mistake and mis- missing this diagnosis and should have, should have pursued a chain of command, gone up the chain of command to get someone who would deal with this lady's bleeding problem, but, but didn't. Well, that's, you know, it's very interesting. I, 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 I know you're fighting very hard for your, for your, you know, your clients, uh, trying to pursue their rights against these uh, medical professionals who have made mistakes. Uh, and Rachel, I think you, you see it yourself up there. I mean, these hospitals, uh, a lot of them have uh, cost issues to deal with. Uh, I can imagine it's a balancing act that's very difficult for them. Sure it is. Yeah, and, that, and that's definitely what I'm hearing. There's a phenomenon I see over and over again that I never quite understand. And I'll say to a treating physician when I take his or her deposition, have you seen the follow-up records on this child? Do you know what the child's current neurologic status is? And invariably, their answer is no. Or maybe they heard the child's got some residual neurologic problems, but they've never looked at the nursery records. They didn't look at the follow-up pediatric records. They don't really have an understanding, even as to the, the course of the child, after delivery in the case of a birth trauma case, in the context of a birth trauma case. And I find that really surprising because I, one would think that if you were sued and an allegation was made that you didn't provide appropriate obstetrical care, and as a result of that, a baby suffered some preventable hypoxic ischemic insult, I think you'd want to know as much about that as possible. I think you'd want to study that neonatal record. I think you'd want to know, did I really deliver a baby in an asphyxiated condition? But most of them profess to have no knowledge as to what happened after they delivered the baby. And if you don't know what happened to your baby afterwards, I don't see how you'd be capable of really engaging in a retrospective analysis and saying, did I manage this delivery properly or not? Well, let's, uh, in a final sense here, uh, you know, you've helped a lot of people, Brian, but I, I can assume that a lot of those clients of yours have inspired you along the way. Uh, that fair statement? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's no greater reward than we get that plaque in the mail, the invitation to come see the client in their new home and see the barrier-free home that they've purchased. And it really reinforces the idea that when we wake up every day and come in the office that we're doing something that's vitally important to these people that makes a difference in their lives and something we can feel really good about. Well, that's a great place to stop. Uh, Brian, if yeah, someone want, yeah, if someone want to get a hold of you, Brian, uh, how would they do that? You can contact me at McKean Associates in Detroit, Michigan. The number is 313-961-4400 or visit our website, www.mckeenassociates.com. Super. And Rachel, how about yourself? Someone wants to get you, how do they get a hold of you? How do they do that? Um, our website is www.ringlerassociates.com um, or our office number is 248 248- Six four three four eight seven seven, and I can be reached at extension two hundred two. Awesome. Well, in case uh, you're a first time listener, you should all know that Ringler Radio has every one of its shows uh, downloadable from our website ringlerassociates.com or from Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. Or you can even listen uh, from iTunes, Brian. You can download it onto your iPod as you're jogging around there in Detroit. You can listen to your voice as you as you hear uh, as you as you run down the street there. Well, anyway, I want to thank you all for listening, Brian. Again, thank you for joining us, and Rachel, thank you. Now, the rest thank of you, you go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, the Hartford, 
Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.